I'll um, read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 25. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that, you, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, love fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to, you, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might also follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, in, in the last talk, we looked at the connection between missional community and love. And we looked at the centrality of love to our witness to the world. And, and there we were focusing on the inside of the church, the relationships within the church. Uh, our relationships with, with other believers. But now we're going to shift our focus. Not from, uh, we're, we're not focusing upon the relationships within the church, but our relationships with the world. How do we relate to society? How does Christchurch Earlsfield uh, missionally relate to the wider world? How do you look outward? What, how are you to think about the society in which you live? And we're going to look at the key things that we need to focus on as we interact with our society. The key things as you do your job, as you raise a family, as you spend time with friends, as you relate to civil authorities. And, and, the, and the, one of the questions we need to look at is how we're to be different. In what way? How should people feel about us? What do we want people saying about us? What, what, what has God called Christchurch Earlsfield to be in Earlsfield? Now, this passage is actually very helpful because it gives us God's will for us as individuals and as a church as we relate to the rest of society, as we engage with people around us. And um, I'm going to start with a kind of big point, a heading, that kind of summarizes everything that we're talking about here, a kind of main point. And the best way of summarizing our relationship to society is this, that we are to be attractive and distinctive attractive and distinctive and that's really the heading for, for, for our relationship to the world now the word distinctive what does that mean it you know, essentially means to be different doesn't it I um, got a nephew Scott and a few years ago when he was three years old I was carrying him on my shoulders went to a theme park and he's for some reason it suddenly occurred to him that I didn't have any hair and he, he looked out of my head and he said Uncle Andy you don't have any hair and he just kept saying it. 
again and again and again as we're walking around the theme park. He just and he, and he said said to his mum, Uncle Andy doesn't have any hair. In other words, he noticed the distinctiveness of my head. It stood out. It was different from every other head that he had noticed or seen. There was, some, there was something missing. To be distinctive is to be different, isn't it? And in verse 11, we are called to be um, sojourners and exiles, aliens and strangers, immigrants, in other words, uh, in the world. We, we're different. We stand out. We're noticeable. Now, we are living in a society full of idols. We talked about that um, we, we've talked about that already. Uh, London has never been as secular and as anti-God as it is now. We live in this city that is worshipping many other things. If you think about London, what are the biggest buildings in London? They used to be cathedrals, but now they're skyscrapers, aren't they? Temples to power, money, career. Those are the Babel Towers of our, of our society. You, you know what a city worships by the biggest buildings in the city. And, and the church buildings are now being turned into flats. And our, the, what, our, what our culture and our society worships is different. So we, we live in this unbelieving society that is full of idols. And here in 1 Peter, we are called to be distinctive, distinctive from the culture of idolatry around us. And 1 Peter makes it very clear that we are strangers and exiles. We're immigrants in this world, immigrants waiting to return home. So if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we read of how the, this letter is written to those who are elect exiles, it says. Elect exiles of the dispersion. I'm reading from the ESV, which is a kind of more literal translation. Verses 17 to 18. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each, other, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you, were that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh. So there is a distinctiveness, a difference about the body of believers. But this, notice that this isn't primarily something that we produce. It, is, it isn't something that we mainly make ourselves. Rather, it is something that is produced by God's work in us. It is given to us. Our exile is objective. It is based on something outside of us. Just by virtue of being in Christ, we are different and distinctive. Automatically, our identity has been changed. And that is the main point in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. We read in verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We are chosen, we are kings and priests, we are holy, we are a new nation, we are God's possession. We were in darkness... It says in verse, uh, it says, uh, and now we are in light. We were, we were once alienated, now we're a people. Once we were under judgment, now we're receiving mercy. This, this is the point he's making in, in verses 9 to 11. The point is we are different and distinctive. And, and, and we're not what we once were. God has done something in us, and, and, and he's done something to us, and this is who we are now. You know, you can't just kind of change your nationality by just wishing for it or by your imagination or your willpower. The Queen has to recognise you or someone on behalf of the Queen has to recognise you and give you a British passport. And that's what makes you different. That's, what, that's where your, ident your, your identity is given to you. And so just in our society, by virtue of being a Christian, we are actually very distinctive. And so our difference isn't made primarily by... Uh, by what our society thinks of us, even though we are different. It isn't just our oddness in our secular culture. Well, it isn't really just about our lifestyle. Our distinctiveness and our difference 
is given to us by God. It is made by God. It is given to us. And, and therefore, because we're distinct, because we're different, because we're aliens and strangers, we live differently. It's very important uh, getting that the, the right way around. We need to get the, the cart and the horse the right, the right way around. We live differently and distinctively because we are different. We're not living differently in order to become different. Now, okay, we're different and distinctive. What kind of lifestyle does that lead to then? Well, 1 Peter makes this very clear, that we, we are called to a holy lifestyle. We're called to a lifestyle that is holy. Now, what does holiness mean? Uh, does it mean carrying around a Bible, parading through the streets, wearing a cross, sewing Jesus t-shirts? I mean, all that's fair enough, but that's not what 1 Peter is talking about. Uh, what 1 Peter is talking about is character, behavior, words, our way of relating. So, chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, we are called to, uh, to be holy as obedient children. In verse 17, we're called to live as strangers. In verse 18, uh, we're told that we are, we've been redeemed and bought, and bought out of spiritual emptiness. In chapter 2, verse 11, we are to live as strangers who fight sin. And in chapter 4... Tell me to chapter 4, will you, verses 3 to 4. I'll read those verses for us. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In other words, we have been made different, and now we live differently. We are looking for holiness. And maybe even this weekend, you, you might need to have a, a think about your life and the direction your life is going in. That maybe you've lost sight of holiness in your life, and um, that's just been pushed right to the back of your mind. But God is very serious about that. And, and, and the, in these verses, we, we hear this very serious call from God to be obedient children, to be holy. Now, because we care about holiness, we, we're out of step with the rest of our society. We're strange. We are strangers, and we are strange. People are put off by us. Um, they find us too intense and serious in our faith. You know, a bunch of young people wanting to follow Jesus and pray and be holy and listen to Bible teaching. That's weird. We, we, we think abortion is a terrible evil. We talk about God's judgment. We, uh, we think sex is to be kept for heterosexual marriage. All these things are weird and offensive in our society. And, and people we, will be put off because of that. They'll be put off uh, from Jesus, from us, because of that. Because there is a huge difference between us and the world. And we need to get used to that. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to minimise. We are different and distinctive, and we live differently and distinctively. And, and, we, and we need to get used to that, those kind of differences from our culture. And those differences, probably with time, will only get bigger and bigger. But that isn't the only thing that 1 Peter says. We're not simply to be distinctive. We're also called to be attractive, to draw people to ourselves, to get attention in a good way, and, and to draw people to... Uh, to uh, to Christ. Now, when uh, I I um, had a sabbatical in the summer, and me and my wife uh, spent a couple of months away, and uh, during the sabbatical, uh, one day I cooked dinner for my wife, and um, we had turkey and pasta and, and um, corn on the cob, and I managed in this dinner to actually create the worst dinner in the history of the world. Actually, every little bit of that dish tasted really bad. The the turkey was the wrong kind of turkey. Um, the pasta and the sauce was disgusting. The corn, the corn wasn't cooked properly. And it was amazing, actually. It wasn't just one bit of it. All of it was actually really horrible. <laughs> now, we could, that, that, that food would bring us sustenance. It would keep us alive. 
but it wasn't attractive, and so we threw in the bin and went to McDonald's, which was a lot more attractive. <laughs> now, the point is, distinctiveness without attractiveness is like that dinner. It'll keep you alive, it's, you know, it's food, but actually, we want to win people. And people will go to what is attractive often. They'll go to McDonald's instead of getting something that will nourish them. So how do we draw people? Is it by being cool and trendy, getting a new haircut for some of us, telling people what we want to hear, giving away free food? No. No, it's not. It's none of these things. It's the goodness of our lives. So chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Church... Church life is to be done in such a way that we draw people to him, that we get praise for him. Verse 15 of chapter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is how, we win, um, this is how um, Christian wives win their unbelieving husbands. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is how we can overcome different kinds of opposition. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Our good lives are, are ways to answer the accusations of people around us. See, the, the funny thing here is that on one hand, holiness makes us different. But on the other hand, it will be the very thing that draws people in. And, and uh, it's not saying that if we just live rightly and righteously, people will just kind of flock to the gospel. That clearly won't happen. And, and this letter is written in the midst of great persecution and opposition. But notice that he says, in the middle of that persecution and the opposition, he doesn't just say, guys, let's just kind of hunker down, uh, draw up the drawbridge, and we're just going to kind of wait until heaven. No, he calls them to winsomeness. In the middle of discrimination and accusations, in the middle of foolish talk about them and trials and hostility, our answer is to be transformed, holy, attractive living. So it's very easy to develop a kind of siege mentality in, in secular London. Um, it's a place full of idols as opposed to the gospel. And the danger for us is that we can become self-righteous. And we, have, and we develop a kind of them and us mentality that isn't framed by the gospel. That our view of, distinctive, our view of distinctiveness can actually, not, can actually be un-gospel. And so we can develop a sense of superiority. And our preaching then becomes hardened. It's kind of take it or leave it. It's kind of, there, there, there's, a, there's a distorted kind of righteousness that comes in that isn't humble or winsome or gentle. And one Peter is teaching us, don't, don't go there. The goodness of our lives is to have an outward focus that draws people in. We're to lead them to good news. And suffering and persecution isn't, a, isn't there to harden us, but to make us softer and more gentle. And so you get this combination, 1 Peter, of attractiveness and difference. And it's a very radical answer. It's not only distinctive, it's not only attractive. It's attractive and different. You can have that kind of distinctiveness that's hard, that emphasizes confrontation, that views every kind of critique as persecution. Or you can have that kind of attractiveness that is superficial, unholy, compromised, manipulative. But scripture, scripture calls us to a combination of both. Distinctiveness and difference. Attractive difference. And, and, and that means that some people will be put off because they, they find you too different and too weird and too strange. And some people will come in and say, wow, isn't this wonderful? The love that you have for one another, I'm really drawn to that. And so we need to work out how the rubber hits the ground on this. And it's very important to kind of work this out. And I guess you, you guys will, will, will be working this out. Because it's not just about Sundays, but it's about our day-to-day -day living. As we live as citizens of London, as you, you're in your workplace or you're with, you're with the families, the people around you. 
And my suggestion is that actually spend some time working this out as a church. What does this really mean for us? What does it look like for you as a church? What does it look like in your workplace, in your family, in your neighbourhood to be attractively different? Well, what we're going to do is look at two case studies that 1 Peter gives us. And, and uh, we get these case studies from verses 13 to 25. And there's two, two, two different um, uh, uh, um, case studies here. The first one is how we relate to unbelieving authorities. And the second one is how we relate to unjust suffering. Two things. So firstly then, how do we deal with unbelieving authorities? Now, it's sobering for us to think here that these guys here were living in an overtly pagan society. Um, there are people here who don't, they don't care about church, they're hostile to it, they're not friendly, they're not church-supporting authorities. Okay? So they're living in a, in a context of persecution. And the amazing thing he says in verse 13, look what he says, submit or be subject uh, to human institutions. So in verse 18 he calls, um, he, he calls the, he, he's referring to servants um, being subject to their masters. In verse 17 he says, honour everyone and honour the emperor. It's very striking when you think about the nature of the emperors and the kind of people they were. And it just reminds us how easy it is for us to dishonour our society, the authorities, the government. We can think society's stupid. Uh, you know, they don't care about God's glory or his word. They're pagans. And we think the people in charge are stupid and we're disrespectful. And maybe you know, we can be in danger of being harsh, can't we? And, and aggressive and adversarial. But here he, talks, he tells us to be subject to, to submit to, to honour. These aren't just passive things. And he's not just saying don't break the law. To honour someone is, is bigger than that, isn't it? It is more than, than just not, not dissing someone. We're not to follow the majority culture. We have different values. We're, we may be viewed as troublemakers. We may have accusations of being prejudiced. But we are to submit. We, the, the, the issues of gay rights is going to be, be a big issue for us long term. I assume that kind of longer term we are going to be viewed a bit like the BNP is viewed today. We're going to be accused of being hypocrites, of being judgmental, all these things. But how do we deal with this? Well, as a church, we're uncompromising in holding to God's word, but our tone can still be submissive, and our attitude can be humble. And we can silence the accusations with our lives. So he says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, our response is to do good, to submit and to do good. And that's a very strong word there. It's probably got some kind of idea of, of overtly giving charity. We are to work for the good of our society, even if our society attacks us. In the uh, first few centuries, the Christians uh, were very distinctive in the Roman Empire because when plagues hit cities, uh, as they would in the ancient world, and everyone started dying, the Christians would stay in the cities and bury the dead. Everyone else would run, but the Christians would stay and pick up all the dead bodies. So what would happen if massive bird flu hit London? Would we all just go, run? Or would we stay and help to, uh, and help to bury the dead? I'm not saying we have to stay, but I'm just saying that's, that's one application the first Christians saw in terms of caring for their city. We are to do good in our workplace where we live. You know, we, we get involved with things like homeless shelters or residence committees, or we, we do good to our neighbours. We're not saying that these things are mission, but we're saying these are part of doing good, of living righteously. And this is how we answer people's criticisms of the church. We don't just say, oh, blow them, and we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Um, we don't say, Lord, you know, rain down fire on our city. But we live proactively to serve our culture. I remember a little while ago, 
seen a, a TV documentary about some American Christians who thought the world was about to end, and so they'd <clears> built all these kind of silos in the ground. And there's a company that specialises in building silos for Christians. And they build these kind of, they're waiting for Armageddon, and they build these massive silos with kind of, you know, and they're filled with tins of baked beans and sausages and all this stuff. And, you know, because when, when, when they thought the world was going to end, they, they were going to go down, they've got to hunker down into the silos. And just, you know, everyone else, they can, they can get blasted, but we're going to go down into our silos. That's not, our, that's not to be our, our, our attitude. The first Christians stayed in the cities and they buried the dead. And they do this, verse 13, for the Lord's sake, because they love him. And they do it, verse 16, because they're, they're God's servants. And, and, and the point is, we do these things for God. Not because the prime minister says so, or because we're in the emperor's pocket. They don't have real power over us. We're not submitting because we're weak, and because we, um, we're, we're desperately trying to get them to, to like us. We do it because we serve God, and we love God. So, I say to my guys in St. John's Church, uh, we don't shoplift or deal skunk or cheats on benefits. We don't do these things because the police might get us or we might go to prison. We do it because of God. We don't do it because kind of my mum brought me up to be different. We do it because of God. We do it because we love God. We submit even to laws that we think are stupid because we love God and because we're free. We know who really is in charge. Whatever the government policies are, whatever the police are like, we answer to someone higher, and we serve someone higher, and we, we trust him with our lives. So the way that we deal with unbelieving authorities is to live attractively, but with a different view of authority. We, we live out an attractive difference in our culture. So that's the first case study. Second case study, how we deal with unfair suffering. And there's some very challenging words here. This is really radical stuff. Because again, we see how Christians are to be attractively different in the way that they deal with, suffer, with unfair suffering. And the basic point here is that we win over evil and violent people through a life of non-retaliation and forgiveness and through not threatening, through not taking revenge. We suffer patiently and absorb other people's sin and evil. That's basically the point he's making here in these verses. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So here he's particularly addressing slaves, um, and I'm not going to go into the whole kind of slavery issue now, but, but the point is that there were lots of Christians who weren't, who weren't powerful, they weren't rich, and they were suffering at the hands of their masters. And, he, and he's teaching them how to, how to endure that, how to, how to face that. And he says, bear it for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's his basic point. In verse 19, endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Now, it's easy to submit when people are nice, because actually when people are nice, you don't really need to submit to them, do you? Because when people are nice, you, you like them and you do what they say and you're happy to do it. You only have to submit when you disagree or when something bad happens. And so he, it's extremely hard to submit when someone is aggressive and violent <coughs> and treats us unfairly. We want to fight back and run away. And maybe you've experienced this in some way, but you know, probably in a work context, maybe you've got a boss who kind of treats you really badly. Um, and here he's teaching us how to be attractively different in our society. Now notice the agenda here. The whole agenda going through these, these chapters is that we are to live in such a way that people see our good deeds and they glorify God. So we're, we live differently so that people will honour God. And so the point he's making is we don't, we don't, our first motivation is not to escape suffering, but it's to win people for Jesus. That is very radical. Our instinct is not to be run, is not to escape suffering, but to win people for Jesus. It is God's glory. 
And he says in verse, that's why he calls um, enduring unjust suffering, verse 19, a gracious thing. So verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In other words, when we endure things, it, we give grace. We show undeserved, when we show undeserved kindness to evil people, we're showing God's grace. It is a gracious thing. It's the kind of thing that only God does. We win people through non-retaliation, through forgiveness, through not hitting back. And it's completely weird for people. It's completely unexpected. It is, just, it, it is not how normal people live. But we're Christians, and so we live differently. Verse 20. It says, For what credit is, is it if, you, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this is just a little reminder to us that actually uh, it's only attractive and different if you haven't provoked the suffering. So um, I, uh, I know a guy um, locally where we are, and he's, he's, he's been a bit of a rascal. He's got into prison a few times. He's a, he's a bit of a violent man. He's a bit more than a rascal. He's a bit of a violent man. And um, I remember him telling me um, uh, a story, but he told us very matter-of-factly one time. He's just, um, and, and, it, and in a slightly kind of offhand way, he, he'd been um, arrested. And um, when he got arrested, he, he punched the police sergeant. And uh, they put him in the cell. And he just told very matter-of-factly, he said, yeah, they came in afterwards and put mats around me and beat me through the mats so they wouldn't leave any bruises. And, um, uh, and he told it kind of very matter-of-factly, yeah, well, I kind of got what I deserved. Um, and, of course, we're a bit shocked by that, aren't we? Because you're, most people are middle class. So you, can't, you naturally trust the police. But where I am, people, people see all kinds of different, different experiences um, of the police. And, um, but that isn't an example of unjust suffering. You know, he punched the police sergeant. I'm not, I'm not defending corrupt police there. But that isn't, an example, that, that, that isn't an example of unjust suffering. And the point is, my boss at work, if he, has a te- he might have temper tantrums with me, but if I'm a pain to work with, that isn't unjust suffering. If I deserve it in some way, that isn't unjust suffering. The point is we are to be specifically different and attractive because we're imitating Jesus. So he says in verse 21, For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, might die ju- well, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus' life is put on display in my life as I endure unjust suffering. The cross is rid up large in my life because my life, my life becomes like a, a great big poster showing the, um, the cross, showing what Jesus has done for me, showing how he suffered. People weren't at the cross, but when they see me, Suffering unjustly and enduring it, the cross is put on display in the workplace, in my family, in the world. And it gives us a good way of looking at injustice in the world. You know, justice in the workplace, uh, when I'm persecuted as a Christian, when, I'm per- when, when, when we're persecuted as a church, when our neighbours are difficult. We live differently and attractively. We're not grasping for the things of this world. We're not looking for our comfort and our security, first of all. We're looking for the glory of Jesus Christ. Our, our comfort and our security is not ultimate for us. Jesus is. We live by the cross and we follow a crucified saviour who didn't use his power to zap his enemies but who patiently endured for our sake. Now there, 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 there arise a couple of questions out of this passage and these are complicated questions and I have to deal with them quickly so forgive me for that but maybe this might seem a bit unreasonable and unfair. I think you know, that question occurs to us. Um, 
you know, really? Really do we have, you know, enduring un unjust suffering? That seems a bit unreasonable and unfair. But again, we need to go back to what this passage is teaching us, that actually remember that we were saved by unjust suffering. That if we got, just, if we got justice, we would be in big trouble. The point is that Jesus, um, Jesus endured unjust suffering for our sake. His life and his suffering were for us. And so our salvation is unfair. And therefore, when we, when we endure unjust suffering, we're giving the world a picture of our salvation, the way we're saved. This is what Jesus did for us. It was unreasonable and unfair for Jesus to die on the cross. The second question we might have is, well, does this mean that I've got to, I've got to be like a, a permanent doormat? And there's also complicated questions about this. Um, God obviously cares about justice. Uh, and in verse 23, it says that Jesus entrusted himself to God as judge. And so we need to work out what we do in specific situations. You know, unfair treatment by your boss, domestic violence, corrupt police. These are all very kind of different situations and need to be dealt with in different ways. And we need to look at, you know, look at scripture, pray, need to talk amongst yourselves, get some wisdom from Andy. Um, and so we need to work out what that means in a specific situation. But the only thing I'd say is don't let this scripture die by a thousand qualifications. Um, we can, we can not, we, we can, by, by qualifying this too much, we can fail to hear what the word actually says to us and, what it, and, and, and to hear the force of it. So we need to work out what it means in a specific situation um, and how we endure unjust suffering. But let's hear what the word actually says. So we've got two case studies here. Now, God has put you in Earlsfield. And uh, we've been thinking about mission and what kind of church you're called to be. And, and here, we, here in, the, in, in 1 Peter, we see that, that we are called as Christians to be attractively different, distinctive and different. As church and individuals, you are to be holy. We're strangers and aliens. We're called out. We're the people of God. And we're called to be attractive. Um, there needs to be a goodness amongst us. We, we don't build up walls to keep people out, but we welcome people in. The way we deal with authorities and the, de and the way we deal with uh, injustice is, is our, our two case studies here that are worked out. And we need to think, think this through for other areas of our lives. There may be other challenges in our lives. And we need to think this through. What does it mean to be attractive and different? Even if your name goes through the mud, even if your reputation gets tarnished, this is how you guys and how we at St. John's are to live, to be attractively different people. This is how we answer the accusations of the world around us. And this is funny how we reach the world. We reach the world through these means of being attractive and different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word here. And it says so many deep and challenging and convicting things to us. And Father, we pray for a real wisdom to work this out in our lives. I pray for my brothers and sisters here uh, that you would give them wisdom as they think through as a church how to live this out, how to be attractive and different, how to be holy and to win people by their good works. Father, I pray for our own church, St. John's, that you would work in our hearts and show us how to be attractive and different. And we pray for London, Father. We pray that all the churches in London would live this out, that, Lord, we would be able to reach our city. For the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's difficult to go from where we've just been to where I think we need to go to. Um, and that is to appropriately say thank you to, to Andy uh, and Katrina. Um, 
I think I think probably the best way to do it is just give them a great big round of applause now. That'd be great. Things to say on that. Um, I, I really appreciate. I've really appreciated it. Uh, this is not in any any sense critical, but the, I think all of us have said that a beautiful simplicity and that in its greatest sense that uh, that actually. All of us have not just taken one main point, but uh, a multiple amount of points in every talk that we've been able to apply to each other uh, and to our own lives. And that, I think, for us all has been very, very helpful. And also, both simplicity, but then the practicality of it as well, that we've been able to walk away and say, look, this is what we need to think about. Um, again, both individually and corporately, and it's been that lovely balance between both. So thank you very much indeed. We've really appreciated your ministry amongst us. We do have a little thank you. Um, it's not for you, really. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Go on, then. Do you work your magic at the back. There. <laughs> Katrina is at the back. Thank you so much, Katrina. Want to give a little clap for We are, we are, we are going to be giving um, Andy a gift, um, but. We've, we've been trying to work. I got his apprentice to, to try and do some kind of like background digging this week. What would Andy like? He was rubbish. Absolutely <laughs> <laughs> nothing. So over breakfast, we've had a little chat today and we've worked out what we'd like to give you. But one thing I'd really like, love you to do, uh, I th uh, having been away and I, I do talks like this at the weekends away, I find the most encouraging thing, the most beneficial thing is to, uh, for you guys, why don't you email me uh, and just put a note of thanks? But not just you know, great talks or why. Tell Andy why it was um, of uh, encouragement. What what part of his, the teaching that he's been giving to us this week has been has helped you grow in your faith uh, and and what you want to do when you get home. So just email me very quickly and I'll just coordinate those and then um, pass them on to Andy with the gift that we're going to be giving him. All right, that'd be much appreciated. Um, can I do a couple of notices, then we're going to send you to groups. Uh, because this will be the last time we gather here before we go to the dining room and then leave. Um, there is no service this afternoon, just to clarify that. Um, but do pray as you kind of go home. There are always some people that turn up, and Linda's going to be there at the door welcoming people and saying, hello, but no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so do pray uh, that those folks who do come will, will, will return again. Um, prayer meeting is on Tuesday um, at, at 7.30 for food at our house and then 8, um, 8 o'clock for, for prayer meeting. We've got a real treat lined up this, this uh, month. We've got Tim Balance Webb over from Australia. He's doing um, mission work over there. Um, he is going to be joining us uh, on Tuesday night. So we'll get to hear more about his work uh, with Mission Aviation Fellowship. Um, so please do come to that. Um, I'm sure you'll find it um, Exciting to hear what's going on amongst the Aboriginal people in North Australia. I think there are two notices. Lunch will be, um, it says 12.30, but let's push it five minutes, it'll be fine. Um, so why don't we go to our group, we're going to go to groups now. I think just just pray, share something that you've really been encouraged, and pray together that we'll be able to put that into practice as we, as we go. I don't think we can lose room five and six, so I think a few groups in here, a couple of groups in the bar, I think we can make them off we go. Rob, where do you want to take your group? This corner. Rob's this corner. Um, Joel, Joel is on this side. Um, my group is in the back around Sarah. 
Ali's going to the bar. Thanks. <coughs> 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 <coughs>